so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Well, in today's episode, I'm joined by Chris Martin, the author of a recent book entitled Terms of Service, The Real Cost of Social Media. And today we talk about how technology is forming and shaping us and what we can do about it. Chris is a content marketing editor at Moody Publishers and a social media marketing and communications consultant. He has led social media strategy at Lifeway Christian Resources and has advised some of the foremost Christian leaders and authors on digital content strategy. He also writes regularly at termsofservice.social. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, as many folks know or listeners know, you've been in the field of social media for a number of years. So I want to talk a little bit about your background. What got you started on this path of studying these subjects and then specifically what prompted you to write this book? It's really funny. Um, My story of wanting to study these subjects goes back longer than even formally working in social media. So I was born in 1990, grew up in a very typical like Midwestern suburban uh, environment. And my dad actually worked for IBM uh, when I was growing up until I was a senior in high school. And he actually even worked from home as early as 1993. I think he started working from home. And so I, we have a kind of a family treasure, a local news clipping of a newspaper photographer came and they, they did a story on my dad. Local man works from home. He's one of a million U.S. residents who works from his house and his son can sit on his lap while he takes phone calls he has a second landline to make phone calls uh, for work. And so it was, it was a really funny kind of background I have in that. But even from then, like from a very early age, you know, I was using the internet and using computers far earlier than most kids my age. Um, you know, I was playing Sesame Street hide and seek video games on floppy disks when I was like four, you know. And so I just loved engaging with tech and specifically the internet 
I remember going to Nickelodeon.com on my dial-up internet service and like playing some trading card game they had that was very similar to Pokemon cards, which was like just blowing up at the time when I was in about the third grade. And so it's, I just remember engaging with the internet around probably what's a normal time for a lot of kids today, un- unfortunately or fortunately, depending how you view that. Um, but for the time was just really kind of online far earlier than a lot of my peers. And so I've just always been interested by the opportunities of the internet and the social internet in particular. We never had AOL, but we had internet services, you know, through web browsers and things like that. And so I've just always been very interested in the social aspects of the internet since I was a kid. I ran a blog when I was in high school with a few other high schoolers in our town, which today, again, may sound kind of like, oh, wow, congrats, or that's how's that different or weird? But in 2005, it was weird for a bunch of high schoolers to be blogging together. And so I've just always been interested in that stuff. When I got to college at Taylor University is when I first started doing social media work professionally. So there was a kid, another student on campus who started a marketing company, and he needed some students to uh, write blog posts for SEO, search engine optimization purposes, and he needed some students to run social media accounts for these kind of small, obscure companies. And I was like, well, hey, I, I've done some of that before, just like on my own. And so he hired me and and it was making better money than working like in the cafeteria or something like that. And I got to do it from my dorm room while watching Netflix. So it was really cool. And so I just started working in social media. Then professionally, when I graduated from Taylor, moved down here to Nashville and started working at Lifeway Christian Resources. So spent seven years at Lifeway, working in different social media positions while at Lifeway first running the blogs and social media of three of their six vice presidents, then moving to coaching authors on how to develop an online platform in like a non-toxic way, right? Like how can you try to build an audience in a way that doesn't cost you your soul, which is still kind of a fight for a lot of authors, as I'm sure you and I both understand. And then was starting to leave social strategy at Lifeway um, and eventually became like the head of social media at Lifeway and oversaw all of their 270 accounts or whatever, and and was helping lead just the kind of trajectory of content. And then it was around like, I want to say 2016, 2017, that I really started to study social media beyond the professional use cases of it and beyond the, like I started digging deeper into more of like the philosophical underpinnings of like, what is this doing to us? To that point, I had been very fascinated with here are all the ways it can connect us. I'd, I'd really only considered the cool things it could do, I guess you could say. I mean, I was aware of the bad things social media could do and the social internet in general, but I was just so interested in like all of the constructive things that could be done that I hadn't started to ask hard questions of the social internet broadly or even of my own relationship with it. And it was around 2016, I want to say 2017, that I really started to ask hard questions of how is my relationship with Twitter changing me? Should I even have an Instagram? What am I trying to do by posting on Instagram? Like, what do I hope that this will accomplish for me? And when I started asking those questions, someone I think referred me to Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, which I had, I'd read Postman before. In fact, I'd read Technopoly in college, but had never read Amusing Ourselves to Death and read that book. And frankly, it, it is the most paradigm shifting like life-changing book for me outside of scripture, I think I've ever read. I mean, it just, though it mentions, obviously never talks about social media. It was published in 1985. Postman was very interested of the 
in the TV revolution at that time, obviously. But it is so relevant to our relationship with the internet today that uh, I just started drawing a lot of connections to it. And, that, and that's really what set me off. I'm like, hey, I really think that you know, Postman wasn't a believer and isn't around today, obviously. At that point, also, I was trying to figure out like where I was headed next in my writing and, and thinking, because I've always really liked writing and it, I've been told it's a gift that I have. And I'm like, well, okay, then I want to use this to try to help people. I don't want to just like squander it or, you know, write in a journal. So I was like, well, I don't really know what to do. And so somebody said, what if you just tried to like bring Postman's ideas into the modern age that we live in and also from a Christian perspective? And I was like, man, that that really sounds like a great idea. I, it's not like I, I'm nowhere near as smart as Postman. That's what I'm trying to say. But I'm just trying to trying to embody a lot of what Postman thought about technological shifts and media ecology and trying to get us all to just stop and think before we uncritically embrace platforms. So that's kind of, I guess, my story of how I've got to where I'm at and and just really try to, um, yeah, just try to help us think more seriously about all these things and how they're changing us. Well, I think you definitely accomplished that goal in the book is helping us to slow down in a society that's continually calling us to speed up and go faster and faster to ask, as you said, some of those hard questions about social media, how it's shaping and forming us. And so I want very much appreciate your work and specifically this book um, and encourage listeners, obviously, to grab a copy of it. It's funny, as you mentioned um, about your dad working in technology, I have a very similar story of my dad working for a Fortune 500 tech company surrounded by technology growing up a lot earlier than most folks. And we hit the Internet I remember writing the book and asking my dad, I said, when did we get the internet? And he said, well, we had a form of it in the late 80s. And I was like, it didn't go public until like 94. And he said, oh yeah, because I was connected in this way through ARPA and through the government and like things like that for the military bases. And so it's just a really funny kind of the world we grew up in. Well, one of the things I really appreciate about your book, and you say this pretty early on, is you talk less about social media per se, and you talk more about the social internet. So what's the significance in that terminology and that shift in terminology? And how does that help us to navigate or kind of maybe better to say, how does it help us to better understand the age in which we live? Yeah, the way I think of it, and I'm far from the first person to kind of separate those two ideas. So um, I don't come here trying to take credit for that. But I forget even where I first read it. But people I've either read and or listened to on this subject like to make that delineation between those social media and the social internet. And the way I mention it in the book, and the, the reason I think it's an important, there, there are important differences, is really goes back to Postman and the difference between a medium and technology. Um, and again, I don't know that he came up with this, but he's the one who I learned it from. A technology is exactly what it sounds like. It's a, it's a set of technologies. In our age, it would be the way the internet works. It would be the way computers work, everything down to microchips and graphics cards and things like that. Those are those are technologies. They are loosely, I guess you say, could call them tools. And media or a medium is the culture and content we build on top of those technologies and the way we use those technologies. I'm probably oversimplifying this, but that's how I best understand the difference between the two. And so when I think about the social internet versus social media, the social internet is the underlying technology and, and machinations of the internet and the way the internet works. The best hard example of the social internet versus social media is like the algorithm or, you know, there's not one singular algorithm. Imagine if there was, imagine how scary that would be. But there are a handful, a lot of algorithms that determine content we see on any number of feeds. 
these algorithms are facets of the social internet, the technology that determines the media that we see. Social media is the content we consume. So the social internet, to use, let's, like, let's use Facebook as an example, the social internet would be the algorithm that, that decides what shows up in your newsfeed, and social media would be that funny cat video you see in your newsfeed. Um, so it's like, I also describe it like an, an analogy. I think of this, the, the way I think of this is like the social internet is like the table setting, you know, the knife, the fork, the plate, and social media is like the food, the content that we consume on, on that's built on top of that table setting, if you will. And in terms of service, what I'm hoping to do is to help us broaden our understanding of our relationship with the social internet beyond just the content we consume or social media and help us to realize that we have a relationship with the technologies as much as we have a relationship with the content. So if I were to just say social media is changing us, you would think of like logos would pop into your head, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. But what a lot of people don't realize is like web 2.0, which is the stage of the web that we're in, Everything is social media. Everything is the social internet, if you will. Like Yelp reviews are social media and Amazon book reviews are social media. When you Google what's the best lawnmower to buy, whatever comes up in your Google search results, usually I, I believe, is, is written by a human, is created by a human. It's a blog post reviewing different lawnmowers or it's a website that paid to have their lawnmower fronted at the top of the search results. And so we're interacting with other people people all across the internet, even beyond the traditional social media apps we think about. And so I think if we're going to seriously start to evaluate our relationship with social media, we have to look beyond the content and start to look at the technologies and how these different technologies and other aspects of the internet are affecting us outside of those three or four big apps we think of. Yeah. And I think that's really helpful perspective because one of the things that I really appreciate about the book is that you give like kind of a, a short history of the internet and social media, these platforms in general. So I encourage listeners, we're not going to talk, you know, dig deep into that because we could spend a whole podcast or more just dig, talking about the history. But one of the things that you do in that is really helping us to understand the speed at which these changes are happening. It was just a few years ago that this happened and just a few years before that this was happening and it's all built on pot. It's like an edifice. It's built on top of one another and it's just changing so fast. And I think a lot of people are starting, at least I hope, are starting to wake up a little bit to say, hey, there's a lot more going on here. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast was to talk about some of those things. But for all of the different platforms and systems that you talk about, you mentioned that they're basically made of the same stuff. So what is the driving force behind these platforms and how does that shift how we engage with them? Yeah, the way I would describe it, and it's hard to say making generalizations in any work like this is so difficult, A, because they're not, all these different platforms are different in a lot of ways. And whether you think about Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, they're all different. Uh, likewise, they're always changing. And I wrote the book in hopes that it would be relevant 10 years from now, even if all of the social media platforms that are mentioned therein uh, are totally gone. Uh, I don't think they will be, but the, the principles are relevant. And I think any social media platform that crops up tomorrow would look similar to a lot of the ones we have today in terms of how it's organized and how it's run. I think finding a, a common denominator, like the lowest common denominator in a lot of situations is really helpful. I'm not a math guy. This is about as math as I get. But when you're looking at social media platforms and all these aspects of the social internet generally, 
at the core of most of them is complex mathematical systems that are designed to harvest attention for profit. That's what most of this stuff is. Almost every social media platform we use that's popular is free. So uh, none of us are paying a service fee to Facebook. If you're subscribed to Twitter Blue, you're you're paying $3 a month to Twitter to have some extra features, but you're not paying for Twitter. You're not paying for LinkedIn. You're not paying for Instagram and all of that. But we are paying with our, our data, I suppose you could say. And a lot of people have said data is the new oil, or if, if another way of saying this is if it's free, you're the product. Both of those things are sort of true and sort of not. We don't have to go into all of that. But I think when it comes down to it, all of these social media platforms are ostensibly providing us a service either to connect with other people, to be entertained, perhaps be entertained by connecting with other people for good or for ill. And in exchange, we're providing them our attention. And most of the time, if we aren't careful, exorbitant amounts of data about ourselves that we may or may not want to be providing them. We just often don't think about it. And so most of these platforms, the way I would describe it is they're attention harvesting machines and they turn that attention into profit. It's like, you know, genuinely, I, th I think of them as attention farms. We are providing our attention. They're harvesting that attention and turning it into a profit for themselves, which at a basic level is not bad. I think when it becomes predatory, there become problems. Um, but I think a lot of social media platforms really are just that. When you go to the lowest common denominator, there are a complex set of mathematical equations, algorithms, as they're called popularly, that are designed to serve us content that we find interesting so that we give them our attention and, and then allow them to make money off of our attention. Yeah, you write about in the book two primary factors that keep us coming back to the social internet because that's one of the driving forces, not that we use it one time, is that we continually use it. I remember um, on The Social Dilemma, we've talked about a few times here on the podcast, uh, one of the interviewees said, it's not a question of whether you check Twitter in the morning is do you check it before you get out of bed or while you're going to the bathroom? And it's one of those things that we're constantly engaged with these things. And you write about two kind of primary factors. One is FOMO or fear of missing out. And then also the addiction element surrounding this. And I know, especially with the concept of addiction, there's been a lot of maybe not controversy, but a lot of discussion around should we label this as social media addiction because it's a little different than maybe like a drug or an alcohol addiction where the person who's addicted needs to cut it off completely. And with social media, one, is that even the right way to go about it? Should we cut it off completely? And some people say we should, and I disagree with that, but I understand the sentiment behind it, and there's some wisdom in that. Um, but others say that, well, it's the life we live. This is the culture in which we live. We can't actually cut ourselves off, whether it's for work or school or whatever. So can you tell us a little bit more about these factors and how you're using the language of addiction specifically? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that... I think we are addicted to what social media provides for us um, in affirmation. And, and I say we're addicted. Again, generalizations are dangerous here. I don't think everyone who uses social media is addicted. And I, and I don't think it's a sort of addiction akin to drug use or, or something like that. But I do think that the best sign of, of addiction that I've seen in use of social media is the many stories of that I've heard from personal friends or have seen frequently on the internet of people who either want to stop using social media and can't or continue to use social media despite regularly talking about how they hate it. 
Um, those are two, I think, pretty good signs of feeling enslaved to something. When you want to stop, but you can't, or you continue to use something despite hating it. And so I, I, generally, I think that's kind of how I would define addiction. Fear of missing out, I think, is pretty clear. There's I work with students in the youth ministry at our church, and I've had conversation with a handful of parents over the years and students about when's the right time to be on social media, conversations like that. It's a conversation I'm glad that I don't have to have yet with my two-year-old daughter, but no, I will at some point. And it's a difficult conversation because I totally understand the social ostracization that happens when a middle schooler or a high schooler is not active on social media. Like I, as a parent, that social isolation would bother me. And so would giving my kid unfettered access to social media bother me. So the fear of missing out is a real thing. And it's one I frankly understand. And the addiction thing, I think I'm not a psychologist. So I don't know that it's, I don't know that social media addiction is like a clinical thing that needs to be treated. I suppose it could be just like shopping addiction is, um, but maybe not as hard as like a, a drug addiction per se. I'm not, again, I'm not a psychologist and I'm not necessarily bought into all of like the dopamine stuff. I've seen some studies that are in favor that like talk about how that is a real big thing. And some who are like, yeah, that's overstated. So I would be wading too far out of my depth, definitely into the psychological space by being too hard and fast on, on like what actual like mental addiction to social media looks like. However, I do think that just the frequency of which I, I like I said, I've heard people want to quit but can't and, and use it despite hating it, I think is those are pretty telltale signs of like, you might be a little enslaved to that thing that you're using. And I actually agree that this is something, it's kind of a hallmark of my writing on this subject. And I think I even state it throughout the book is that I never really advocate for people to just delete social media from their lives or from their phones or whatever. I think that can be healthy, especially if you find yourself like enslaved to it, like wanting to use it, but hating it or not being able to quit when you need to. I, I think then it can be good to like cut yourself off completely, even for just the time. But if we have this idea that if you just delete your social media accounts, it'll all go away. That's just such a mistaken idea. I, I have a grandmother who's about 80 Eight, I think. And we talk every Sunday afternoon, evening, usually when I'm making dinner on Sunday. And she's never used the internet until in the last year and a half, my parents got her an iPhone so that she can see pictures of her great granddaughter, my daughter, in a shared like Apple photo cloud folder that we use. And because we were literally mailing her pictures. Uh, and she was like, I, I would like to see them more frequently. So my parents bless their heart, set her up with an iPhone. And she has, she doesn't even text, she doesn't even text, but she knows how to use the Apple cloud photo function. So anyway, we'll talk on a Sunday and she hangs out with friends who do use social media and they'll talk to her about stuff they see on Facebook. And then she'll relay to me what her friends saw on Facebook. In fact, one time, I won't go into the whole story, but she was fired up and my grandma doesn't get super fired up. And so she was fired up talking to me on the phone because of a piece of fake news that her friend had been led astray by on Facebook that then her friend passed it on to my grandma. And my grandma said to me, and you'll appreciate this, Jason, I quote, I can't believe Facebook would do that. Do you know how I can send them a letter? I would love to send them a letter and tell them how ridiculous it is that they would pull this piece of content. It was like a patriotic piece. She was like, I can't believe that they would delete this God bless America post over an American flag, how could they do that? I want to write them. I'm liable to write them a letter. How can I write them a letter? And she knows I work in, work in social media. I'm like, Grandma, I, 
I understand. I really, I don't think you can write Facebook a letter. Like she was really fired up. So I, I often use that to say, I mean, gosh, that was just not even six months ago. And, but you, you can't escape social media. And I use the analogy kind of early in the book that it's like a fish in water. We're swimming in it. We're never going to be able to escape it. And we just need to realize that sometimes it can be really toxic and it's just something we kind of have to learn to live with, I think. Yeah. And I think that's something you do really well throughout the book is causing us to ask some of those hard questions. And one of the hard questions uh, that I think is getting rightfully getting a lot of attention, especially in Christian circles, but even kind of in wider culture as well, is the question of the nature of technology or to be really fancy with it, to say the philosophy of technology. So this is really getting at that question. You address it at certain times throughout the book. Is technology just a tool or is it something more than that? And if you look at a lot of the books you cite and a lot of the works you interact with, whether it's like Lewin or Alul or Lewis Mumford or others, they're all very, there's some uh, distinct positions on what is the nature of technology? What is the philosophy of technology? So from your work and from your experience, how do you approach technology? What is it? Is it a neutral tool? Is it something more than that, more of a force that shapes and forms us in very particular ways? I know often this debate, I guess you could say, is cast in technological instrumentalism. So for listeners' sake, that instrument is the tool at base of it. So technology is a tool or technological determinism, meaning that certain things are predetermined, that we don't really have a lot of hope um, in the midst of it. So how do you, as an author and as one who's kind of steeped in this field, how do you think about a philosophy of technology, specifically as a Christian? Is it a tool or is it something more than that? So I used to think social media is like a neutral tool that could be used for good or ill in a sort of like blank slate, tabula rasa sort of idea where like, could go one way, could go the other way, really on equal ground, not really bent toward one or the other. And I I used to ascribe to that and, and really kind of bang the drum on, on that a lot. In the past few years, I kind of come to the conclusion that I can no longer say that social media, the social internet generally, is a neutral tool. Um, I can't speak for all technologies. Like, I, you know, I think certain technologies probably lend themselves to being more neutral than others. But I think in this in the space of terms like social media, the social internet, I can't come to terms with the idea that social media is a neutral tool because of the clear human influence, I guess you could say. Like when I think of a of a neutral tool, I think of a something that could be equally used to destroy or construct. I think of something that perhaps even occurs naturally. I can't come to the position that social media is a neutral tool when it's stated ends or perhaps not so stated, but kind of underlying ends are not always in the user's best interest and often promote certain activity that's more harmful than helpful. So with studies that have been done that show certain algorithms on certain social media platforms, like the Facebook algorithm, the Facebook algorithm encourages conflict rather than cooperation. Like that, that's inherently not neutral. Like if it, if it bends one way or the other, um, if it, if it's built one, slanted one way or the other, these technologies are not neutral and meant to foster equally good or bad behavior, encouraging or discouraging experiences. And I think more often than not, we've seen them encourage negative experiences. So I, I have a hard time any longer believing that social media and the broader social internet is a neutral tool because the ends to which they've been create for which they have been created. I don't think lead to the flourishing of of their users. And I think 
can often lead to the detriment of their users. No, I think that's really helpful and kind of a good way to think about it. And I think that's by and large kind of the the growing position among many is to say, okay, something is a little different here uh, with social internet, with social media in general, is that these tools don't seem like just tools any longer. But in some sense, that's the way it's always been, um, is that a, a shovel encourages you to use it in a very particular way. It builds certain muscle groups. It shapes and forms you physically in that way. But it also, you know, for my kids, I know especially, and maybe your daughter's not there yet, but my, I have two boys, a three-year-old and a five-year-old. And if I hand them a toy hammer, everything becomes a nail. Uh, Jacob Schatzer, who we had on the podcast a while back, talked about that. He writes, a, he has a really just incredible quote in his book, on, on transhumanism in the image of God talking about this. He said the old adage, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. He says, well, today it's uh, you have a smartphone and a camera, everything looks like a status update. And I just love the way he kind of, that little turn of phrase to say, yeah, it is encouraging me and pushing me to use it in a very particular way. And that can be for my good, but in many ways it's for, to my detriment um, because of a lot of things we've talked about. One of the things that you do in the book um, is that you highlight some of these uh, negative aspects, and one of which is polarization. And you specifically cast it in light of personalization. So this kind of personalized online experience. So every app is, you know, my timeline, my website, my blog, everything is, it's your browsing recommendations, or, you know, what would you want to watch next? So everything is personalized. So I wanted to see if you could speak to that. What is this kind of personalization that we see in technology, especially in the social internet? And how do you see that fueling polarization specifically? Yeah, the the personalization is what makes the social internet truly unique um, and makes it special and makes it so good at keeping our attention. It's like, imagine there are a million television channels from you to choose from. And in fact, they'll create just one more that's specifically for you. Um, that's what TV never quite had. TV, you know, there, I don't know how many TV channels there are today. Like if you get the deluxe direct TV package or something like that, but I'm sure you can get a TV package of 500 channels at least. And the hope is, from the cable provider's perspective, from the television company's perspective, is that one of those 500 will kind of feel like your TV channel, or a couple of them will kind of be the ones that you can choose from that are that are designed just for you. Social media, if you imagine every content feed, your news feed on Facebook, your Twitter timeline, your For You page on TikTok, your recommended video section on YouTube, these are all the algorithmic recommendation engine platforms that are serving you up content. The hope is from these platforms is that these are kind of the social media TV channels that are specifically designed for you and your interests. So that's what makes social media so cool, frankly. Like it's one of the things that still in a good way kind of blows my mind at how good these platforms are at recognizing who we are and what we like without ever knowing us personally. There's an article I wrote for TGC a number of months ago about how sometimes our, our algorithms know us better than we do, and that can be, frankly, kind of scary. There have been people who have even reported learning things about themselves because the algorithms were, were sending them certain kinds of content. They're like, am I that kind of person? Do I like that kind of thing? Is that who I am? Is that my identity or is that is that my interest? And the validity of that, you know, I don't know one way or the other, but it, it like people feel like they're discovering themselves because of their relationship with these algorithms, which is fascinating to me. And so I think personalization via these mathematical equations that are taking our every action on these platforms into account is like kind of cool. Like it's like, wow, that's really like a feat 
like a technological feat. But at the same time, it's super kind of creepy to me. You know, I think it's creepy to a lot of people. And I think the way it promotes polarization is the way I've heard it described. And I want to say it was in Jerron Lanier's 10 arguments for deleting your social media accounts right now, but I forget who said this. So that might not be the right citation that, you know, back when it was just TV, you know, if your uncle watched Fox news and your grandpa watched MSNBC and your parents watched CNN and you kind of like thought all of them were kind of crazy in their own way. Well, you could at least go to that TV station and see what it was that they were consuming. You could watch that Fox news program that your uncle always watches. You could watch that CNN program that your mom and dad always watch. And you could try to like get in their mental shoes and get in their mindset and try to understand where they're coming from, from their particular perspective, because all those platforms are polarizing in their own sense and personalized in their own sense for particular ideologies and political philosophies or whatever. But he says, I think it's Jaron Lanier says, you can't peek into other people's personalized algorithms. If you're trying to have a discussion with somebody in your church or in your neighborhood and it seems like they're coming from a particular philosophical view or political view or religious view, and it seems like they've been influenced by their YouTube recommendations or their TikTok for you page, you can't go peek into their feeds. You can't, you can't see where they're coming from. It's impossible to see where they're coming from. And I think that is one of the more damaging sides of this truly amazing technological advancement in content recommendations is it makes it really hard to see other people's points of view, which I think is valuable. Even if you're not going to agree with them, it helps you better converse with other people if you can better understand where they're coming from. And with the hyper-personalization of everything, A, that makes it more, even if not in a clinical sense, if it feels like these algorithms know you personally, it's like, you know, it's like a personalized chef who can cook you up whatever content you want at any time. That's really appealing. But then also, you can start to go down some rabbit holes that could get kind of dangerous. I mean, these recommendation algorithms have been shown to radicalize people in various ways. And so you can start to go down some paths maybe you shouldn't, but the algorithms don't have a moral compass per se. That They know what content should and should and shouldn't be allowed, but they don't have a moral compass per se. So they're largely just trying to deliver you more of what you're interested in, whether or not that's good or bad. And so we can start to head down these routes. And then if we try to converse people, you know, with people offline or even online, and it can be hard to know where each other are coming from. So I just think that that pretty just in like an illogical sense can contribute to a sort of cheap tribalism and a, and a fear of trying to engage with other people because we can't really see where they're coming from. Yeah, it reminds me uh, years ago. And I, if you can, if any of the listeners know this, you can email us at weeklytech at erlc.com. But maybe, Chris, you may know this too. There was a tool a long time ago that was like, I remember it was like how you could view Twitter. And it showed like these like nine different Twitter profiles. And you could literally click on it and it would show you, it would let you peek behind the curtain a little bit to see what someone in that perspective, whether it was conservative or liberal or progressive or libertarian or what have you, they could kind of peek behind the curtain and see it. And I've for years, I've been searching for this thing. and can't find it. Uh, but it reminds me of that is that we don't we don't realize how curated and how personalized these worlds are online. Um, the things I see on social media aren't maybe the, even the same things that you think. And we may share a lot of different uh, shared interest and agree on a lot of different topics, but they're personalized. They're tweaked, which I think, as you said, I, th- I think that does play a role in a lot of the polarization that we see today, a lot of the division that we see today. 
Given the ubiquity of the social internet, though, and the ways that we know that it's shaping us, I mean, you start off the book saying, I really hope, basically, you know, I hope you don't walk away super discouraged from this book because I'm going to tell you all the bad news. But closer to the end of the book, you kind of shift to say, here, here are some practices that you would encourage listeners or readers to cultivate in their lives. Uh, so without going into super depth on all of them by any means, what are some of these practices that you recommend and why? Yeah, I encourage people uh, study history. Man, I love studying history, and I'm like I'm not a historian or anything like that. I one of my favorite. I love studying um, Native American history. Like I love 1491, which is a f- super fascinating book about what America was like before Columbus got here. Because I always kind of wondered, like, there's this lost like. What did the first people who set foot on the Americas see when they got here? So, like, I love studying that. And I also love studying, like, early American history, you know, like, Revolutionary War history, that timeline. So, anyway, I love studying that. And and studying history in general, I think, just helps us realize where we've been. And that can help us better understand where we're at. Uh, it, you know, Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. And sometimes... And every day, it can be a little bit hard. I don't know if you feel this way. It can start, sometimes it can feel hard to believe there's nothing new under the sun when some of this stuff is coming around. It's like, man, have we really had recommendation algorithms before? You know, obviously it's not that specific, but like, but when it feels like there's always something new, history reminds us that what's new isn't necessarily what's most important or what's best. So studying history is is one of those. Admire creation. Man, I'm I love birds. I'm an amateur bird watcher. I like to go on walks and not take music. We live right by a really large park and it's wonderful to be able to go walk in the woods there and walk by the baseball fields during the summer and hear the kids playing baseball. You know, and the whole reason I suggest things like study history or admire creation or build friendships is really just to mediate our relationship with social media and the social internet more broadly. Like I've said before, I don't think the answer is just to log off, but I do think the answer is to ask harder questions of our relationship with these platforms. A lot of us have just embraced them without even asking any questions. We just kind of the whole wordplay of the book, Terms of Service, is we just check yes. I do it too. I've never read all these Terms of Services and all these different platforms, but we just check yes and we don't often think about what we're signing up for and the ways we're committing to maybe serve these platforms as much as they serve us. And my hope is if we can take some more offline action, studying history in in books, going to coffee with friends rather than just texting them, admiring creation and not feeling the need to always post pictures of what it is we're admiring. Like, what if we took a picture of a Nashville sunset? You'll appreciate this. What if we took a picture of a Nashville sunset and didn't post it online? Would it exist, you know? And so I just want to encourage at the end of the book, because because I couldn't, I didn't want to encourage people just log off. It's like, well, what do we do? And I think just taking some actions to invest in your offline life. You know, one of my biggest fears is that where online life, the internet used to feel derivative of offline life, real life as it's often called, though I would argue online life is just as real as offline, even if not as fruitful and beautiful. My fear is that online life is actually becoming dominant and offline life is becoming derivative of online life. So my hope, at the end of the book, to some in, in our sort of calls to action is just let's live a little bit more offline. And I'm not saying like check your screen time every every week. I mean that that can be constructive and can be helpful, like to reduce your screen time. That's that's great. But I'm just saying like let's just be more thoughtful. Just like actually think rather than 
go with the flow. Um, and you may decide that your amount of screen time is is great. And I would say that's fine. Just make sure you're like having relationships with people over coffee and, and inviting people into your home and, and setting up accountability to make sure you're using these platforms in constructive ways, not destructive ways. And so really the, all those steps at the end of the book, just quick hit, like really short chapters is just like, hey, here's some ways to just root yourself in the offline world so that it doesn't feel like maybe it is that the online world is just starting to take over. No, I think all that's really helpful, Chris. And one of the things that we do at the end of each podcast is just talk about some recommended resources. So obviously, you've talked a little bit about Marshall McLuhan and his works, whether it was Technopoly or Amusing Ourselves to Death. I know he's been pretty formative in your life. What are some resources that you would recommend, obviously outside your own, if folks wanted to dig a little bit deeper into some of these conversations or some of these issues, specifically about kind of our dependence upon technology? Yeah. Um Amusing Ourselves to Death by Postman is the first book I could recommend anybody go read. So definitely, it's it's pretty short, and and Postman's super smart, but it's not a hard read. Um, it's it's a really accessible little book written in 1985 and more relevant today than it was even then. In fact, there's an entire chapter on televangelists, which like feels like a blast from the past, but it was like he talks about how people going on TV to preach the gospel. And he, he's not a Christian, but he's, he's friendly toward Christians. And so he's like, I really like, I think the Christian message is very compelling. And I just think they're making it cheap by promoting it on television. And it's like, man, are we doing that with the internet? Like, are we, are we cheapening the gospel message and how we're promoting it on the internet? Surely in some ways, but hopefully not in all ways. So anyway, there's a lot of relevant stuff in amusing ourselves to death that applies today, even if it's about technologies from long ago. So that's a great one. Um, Irresistible, I think, is the name by Adam Alter. It's from a few years ago. It's kind of old now, I guess, in social media land. But it's really great about the sort of like what keeps us attached. And it's more about our screens in general, but it talks a lot about social media. The Attention Merchants by Tim Wu uh, is very good. Like reading his book and his kind of brief history of the social internet really inspired me to include part of a version of that in mind just because his... You know, I grew up using MySpace and all of those early social media platforms, but I didn't know that MySpace tried to buy Facebook, you know, early on and Zuckerberg said no. And anyway, it was very, very interesting little history. And so Tim Wu, uh, the attention merchants, he does a very good job just on that subject of attention and how it is a hot commodity and a currency and how it gets traded. One last one is about one platform in, in particular is Sarah Fryer's book, No Filter is about Instagram specifically. And I don't usually like reading books about specific platforms just because they can become outdated so quickly. Um, like I have Stephen Levy's Facebook book that I read like half of, but I was like, uh, this is like three years old and so much of this has probably already changed. But Sarah Fryer's book on Instagram called No Filter uh, just came out, I think in 2020 and is very, very good. And it's just a history of like, I was on Instagram in its first days, but I didn't know just so much of how it began and then how Facebook took it over and why the founders left. So anyway, that's a, that's a fascinating book just on one of the platforms that really dominates the space today. Yeah, we'll make sure to include a link to all of those uh, in the show notes for listeners if they want to grab that, as well as a copy of your book. And one thing I want to note right before we go, you probably are familiar with this. We'll link it to the in the show notes. But Postman gave a talk, um, I think it maybe was in Colorado, at some point talking to pastors and ministry leaders. 
And it's like five points kind of derivative of his work, applying it to people of faith, even though he's not a person of faith. And it's this really interesting document. A friend shared it with me years ago. And we'll post that for listeners. I can make sure to send you a copy if you haven't seen it either. Uh, but it's just really interesting because you take all of Postman's thought and then letting him kind of condense it down for ministry leaders in some sense was really fascinating. Uh, but Chris, I really appreciate it. One, I appreciate your work and specifically this book. I hope that it has all the success of the world. Really looking forward to uh, listeners grabbing a copy of that. And I sure appreciate you taking the time to join us here on the Digital Public Square. Sure. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I, I love your stuff. You're a lot smarter than I am and work very deeply in this space. And my hope is just to take a lot of the stuff you and I like to study, you doing a lot of the ethics and, and philosophical stuff. And I love just trying to take a lot of the stuff we're interested in and try to make it as accessible as possible. Um, and so that's really what I hope to do in terms. And, and I hope people find it interesting and, and find it helpful. So yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here and we'll have to get together again. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Chris and learn more about his new book, as well as the recommended resources that he mentioned in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is an audio production of Owens Productions. It's produced by Jason Thacker and production assistance is provided by Cameron Hayner. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week.